Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace.com. They're the fast and easy way to create a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 30% off your new account for three months, just go to Squarespace.com and use the offer code TWIP12. This week on TWIP, CNN lays off its photojournalists saying free is better. Camera shops begin charging to touch their junk. A look at the most memorable images and stories of 2011, plus an interview with Paul C. Buff, the guy behind White Lightning and Alien Bee's lighting equipment. It's Wednesday, December 7th, 2011, and this is TWIP. And welcome back to TWIP, your weekly source of photographic inspiration. I am your host, Frederick Van Johnson, and joining me today on the show are Mr. Doug Kay, finally, and Mr. Bruce Clark. So we've got a we've got a diverse crew today. First of all, Doug, you have not been on TWIP in a long time. Where what what's been going on and how are you? Uh, I'm good, good. I, I lost a month and a half. I was in the hospital for 17 days and recovering for a month after that, but I'm I'm back. I'm back. Wow, good. Well, welcome back. It's good to have you. It's good to hear your voice and good to have your voice of reason on the, on the show. <laughs> we'll, we'll see about that. <laughs> we definitely need that. And also, uh, Bruce Clark is back. Hey, Bruce, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. How's, how's the weather up there in Canada? Ah, uh, you know, it's winter. It's, it's winter. Not bad, got, a, got a white okay. Christmas going on? Yeah, it's a little a little bit. Not much though, actually. It's been uh, up where we are not too bad. So, if we if we can make it through the rest of the month, I'll be happy. You'll the weather happy. stays like this. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. And Bruce, you're about to you got an adventure plan coming up, right? Mm-hmm. You're, where, you're I going do. to India and all kinds of crazy places. You're like mm-hmm. Indiana Jones. What's going on? Something like that. Yeah, I'm starting to feel like the travel junkie. Um, <laughs> yeah, like Joseph. Uh, no, I'm actually headed to my wife and I are going to India in about uh, oh, just uh, about two weeks here to photograph a wedding. And then uh, we're going to sort of tour around northern India and then uh, into Nepal for a few days before coming back. So, yeah, it's sort of a bit of a whirlwind trip. So That's good. That's cool. You know, just before we get started, I, I recorded an interview earlier this week with a, with a guy. I won't say who it is to give it away. But one of, his, uh, one of his tenants that he talked about, he talked about 10 things in an interview. And one of them was, instead of buying more gear go places and shoot with the gear that you have and i thought that was really really salient it was a really good point so it's a good tip and bruce is doing that so absolutely yeah all right guys let's jump into the news we got a lot of stuff to talk about today um and the first thing is cnn so the cnn cable news network has laid off photojournalists i don't want to say it's photojournalists but i don't know if it's all of them but 50 of them were given the axe um, a couple days ago, and, and basically in an email, the senior VP, Jack Womack, said basically the reason for them killing off all these photojournalists was the, quote, the accessibility of cameras and the growth of citizen journalism were the reason for the terminations. In other words, all you folks out there with your cool DSLRs and camera phones, 
are doing the job that CNN, you know, needed photojournalists, real photojournalists to do in the past. And now they can save money by just, you know, setting those people free. So <coughs> cheapskates, cheapskates. Yeah. So <laughs> let, let me throw it to Doug first. Doug, I mean, yeah, on the one hand, I'm looking at this. I'm like, OK, CNN is a corporation. They're beheld into their shareholders. They got to cut costs. And if they can, they can trim fat you know not to say photojournalists are fat but if they can trim to make the bottom line look more attractive then hey that's what they're supposed to do because they're a corporation on the other hand when i put on my photographer hat i'm like seriously dude you're 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 sacrificing people that actually know how to make images for people that are just you know they're randomly taking images with not a whole lot of like talent invested in the making of that image what do you where do you fall on that doug well, I, you know, I, I feel so guilty. I mean, it was bad enough if I did microstock. I was putting professional photographers out of work. And now if I go out and take pictures of something, I'm putting professional journalistic photographers out of work. What am I going to do? I, I better just sell my camera, I guess. <laughs> but, um, I, you know, it's, it is the same trend as what's happened, you know, in other areas. We saw bloggers being accused of undermining journalism and yeah. microstock is an example of, of hurting the stock business, which of course it, it has, um, you know, CNN's business has changed too. Uh, I don't, I, I think it's more of a business change than a, than a journalism change. I think, you know, hard news is being cut back everywhere. And, um, uh, you know, it's not just cameramen, it's editors too. And, uh, I, I, I think they're, I don't think it's really all about iReport. I think they're using, they're trying to spin this layoff of their people as a step forward for the company. I don't think that it really is. So, where are you following that, Bruce? Is it is it is it actually iReport is just working so fantastically good that they're able to cut fifty people off, or or something else? What do you think? It's in, it's definitely an interesting story, and uh, I'm you know we're seeing it here just even locally. Um, you know there was uh, I, I put out a tweet last week when this story sort of came came about, and um, sort of some people replied to me. And our local newspaper here, actually the Edmonton Journal, who, which Steve Simon used to work for, mm-hmm. um, recently started up a section of their website, which is sort of their. Uh, they're calling it their community newsroom, and it's sort of along the same lines. And I had an interesting sort of back and forth over Twitter with the with the editor of that section, and she sort of assured, you know, uh, us that there's no loss of jobs. It's just they're trying to reach out to the community and and gather more news from more you know more sources. So <clears throat> this is just a, a growing trend. I mean, even you look at at CNN themselves, they've got you know people out there reporting you know in hurricanes from their iPhones. Uh, and these are the actual paid reporters that are on staff out doing this. So, you know, I think it's just with the accessibility of, uh, you know, the, the technology these days, we're seeing more and more of this, you know, sort of in the field guerrilla type reporting. But I think what they're, you know, there's always going to be this place for proper photojournalism. Yeah. And those who have, you know, who have, you know, studied it and trained in it and, and know it. And are able to, you know, they understand things like ethics, and uh, well, and know. it's telling a story, right? They understand the whole idea of photojournalism is to tell a story in pictures and capture the emotion in pictures and words. Sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. uh, not just one image. Like, yeah, I think, I think from from my perspective, there's room for both. Like, okay, there's a tornado ravaging Arkansas, right? And somebody, the only person there, happened to have an iPhone. He took some video or a photo of the this thing tearing up trailers or whatever, right? So 
of course we want to see that. But at the same time, a more in-depth story like CNN used to do, or if they, you know, I don't know if they're going to continue doing it, where maybe you go in and you you know you document the, how this natural disaster affected one particular family. Can can the citizen journalist do that? I don't know, Doug. Yeah, I, I mean, Bruce made a really good point. He reminded me about the you know reporters who are asked to stand out in the middle of a hurricane. Um, you know, there's there's obviously a lot of qualified professionals at places like CNN who are being asked to do the wrong thing. I mean, how many of them actually get to do a good photojournalistic essay? Uh, it doesn't happen very often. Um, but you know, I think you're right. I don't think the eye reporter has the experience uh, to really do that good a job. And we'll have to see. I, you know, they said I reporter and they said 50 people were let go. When I watch CNN, I don't see enough I report content to, to replace 50 people. Yeah. So that's why I think there's something that's just not quite right about the story. That's all. Yeah, and then the other piece of the other piece, the the eight hundred pound gorilla in the room is, yeah, they were paying probably decent salaries to these fifty photojournalists, and they're getting the eye report content for nothing. It's right. free, right? right? So fifty times, let's just say, I don't know, what does the average photojournalist make? Steve Simon would tell you about twenty five thousand dollars, <laughs> right? Right. So, I mean, that's. You know, even if it's fifty, sixty, seventy, a hundred thousand dollars times fifty, that's a lot of money that the that the company is now saving. Yeah. Right. But at the expense of quality journalism, I don't know. I yeah. don't know. I, I it's uh, you know, we probably won't notice a change. Unfortunately. Really? Yeah. yeah you think I, I, you think we're like, at a point like like the world is we're at the YouTube we're it's the YouTube generation, right? So we're at the point where we're we're okay with consuming just sort of ragged kind of video. We don't need the polish, or but yeah, it's, it's I, I not. So. It's not all. It's not just the quality of the video. It is the content behind the video and knowing that okay, I want to show, I want to show this guy looking ominous, so I'm going to shoot him from a low angle, or I want to make this little kid look sad, so I'm going to shoot him from a high angle and light it like this. Right? We won't right. get any of that anymore. We're not even close. Right. Right. I mean, like I said, it's the YouTube content, and it's. You know, it's car chases. It's essentially, you know, we're we're seeing we're seeing CNN content and other outlets going into rerunning the same content. Somehow, somehow, there's the feeling that if you get a piece of video from an iPhone, it's okay to show it over and over again, like the uh, like the UC um, Davis pepper spray thing, right? Yeah. Over and over and over again. Whereas, you know, stuff that was shot, you know, with more intent and more uh, editorial content and style, you're not going to see like that. You're going to see it more in essay format, I think. Yeah. So I think there, I think there's a there's a shift to a different type of content. So Bruce, is this shift? Is CNN just the they just took their finger out of the dike, and we're going to see other newspapers fall in line, including Edmonton and you know the the rest of the folks in the world saying, hey, I can if CNN can save all that money, how come I can't? Let's get rid of all those guys with those expensive cameras. You know, I think that they probably will, um, but but I think ultimately we're going to lose that, like like Doug was saying, that that carefully sort of edited and crafted version. You know, I I I'm personally, you know, I'm tired of watching the news and and like Doug was saying, watching that same ten second clip because that's all they have. Yeah. <laughs> 
and they, and they just loop it and loop it and loop it and kind of kind of beat beat it to death. And yeah. it's shaky, you know, sort of crappy cell phone video footage. And there's just I don't know. I watch it and I'm like, ugh. You know, it's, I guess it's better than nothing if, if that's the only thing that they could get, and they were the only person that was that was there. Right. But I think if they actually invested in and and had a you know a big staff of quality photojournalists to really do do a good job of covering it, and nowadays with you know with the video being introduced more in the DSLRs and and getting them you know sort of those hybrid type photojournalists out there that are able to do the video and the stills multimediographers uh, yeah yeah the multimediographers and i think the other thing i mean this sort of is going to tie into a story we're going to talk about a little later on uh, today about the sort of the, some of the top images none of those top images are i don't think <laughs> from a you know a citizen journalist with a with a you know with an iphone right. out in the street so i think there's you know there's something to be said for that quality photojournalism and uh, you know i'm always drawn you know like the the uh, the big picture on the boston globe site you know i'm always drawn to those types of images and you just i don't think you get that same quality and just emotional feeling with with images that are sort of shot by the "Quote unquote citizen journalist." Not saying they can't capture it, but mm-hmm. I don't. I think it's it's maybe one out of a thousand. Yeah, might the odds get something like that, right? So yeah. So does this mean? I mean, just to put a fine point on it, does this mean that the career of photojournalist is a dinosaur and it's going away? Doug, what do you think? Yeah, you know, it was in trouble to begin with. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, well, yeah, Steve will tell you that. <laughs> yeah, um, I think. Uh, you know, probably if you step back and look at the big picture, yes, it is in trouble. Uh, probably a lot of this comes from the general downturn in the worldwide economy, too. Um, and, you know, news outlets are being cut back because advertising's cut back. And, um, you know, who gets it in the end is the, the little guy out there, um, you know, with the salaried or contract job. So um, I do think it I, I do think it will impact um the career of the photojournalist. Yeah. So what do, you know what? What, do, what do guys that are like, you know what, I want to be, I want to tell stories with my camera. That's the genre of photography that appeals to me most. I don't want to shoot models. I don't want to shoot landscapes. I want to tell stories of the, you know, the, the crack dealer or the crack house and, you know, how it's impacting that particular community and, you know, important stories like that. Where, if the photojournalists go away, who's going to tell those stories? What do you think, yeah, Bruce? You, you better have a day job. Kickstarter, <laughs> yeah, yeah, or whoever. What do you guys project. think? Kick. I think you know. I see a lot of the, these uh, Kickstarter projects and things where people want to go in and cover a, a particular topic and really dig into it. And um, you know, you're seeing a lot of that kind of stuff uh, on Kickstarter. Uh, people looking to that as a source to raise funds to do those types of projects. Um, you know, I, I think we'll see maybe a bit of a rise, maybe a bit of a you know, maybe a return to a time where there's a bit of a boutique type feel to it where people will go and maybe start up sites that are more of like a, uh, like a, like a 60 minutes, you know, on the web, but does a really good in-depth, you know, job of it. Maybe somebody will pick up that ball and, and, and run with it. Yeah. Hard to say. Room for photo. I mean, there's going to be places where photojournalists, you know, Joe Citizen isn't going to want to go that photojournalists are going to have to maybe go into riskier and more dangerous situations yeah, uh, to I'm get those about. photos. Yeah. Like I'm looking, just recently looking at a story on the New York Times about the uh, famine in Somalia. Mm-hmm. And some of the images coming out of there are just, I mean, they're just heartbreaking to see. But yet, you know, you're, you're only going to get 
sort of, you know, the true, true diehard photojournalist that's willing to kind of go into those very dangerous places to capture those those images. Yeah, the true, true diehard and well-funded photojournalist that can go in and he knows he's going in for a specific reason and he's being compensated for putting his, you know, his life in harm's way, you know, and like if if you're not, if if even those like specifically those kind of stories you know there's something that happens in some far off region from the united states or wherever you know some natural disaster what who's going to cover that stuff say in 2015 you know after all this stuff sort of maybe hopefully it plays out by then you know by 2015 some natural disaster happens all the news outlets new york times cnn who have Fox News, all these places have laid off all of their traditional photojournalists in lieu of the citizen photojournalists. Are they going to rely on the folks on the ground there in place to document it? Or are they going to say, okay, you know, maybe they keep like a ninja staff of photojournalists that they can tap at any given time to go out? I mean, how did, how is it going to play out? This year in between the Japanese earthquake and tsunami and the Arab Spring, We've seen what happens. We, I mean, look at what happened in, in uh, the Arab Spring where things were going on before even the professional crews could get in there. And we did have coverage. So we're trading, we're in, you know, to, to take the other side of this and just look at this not from the professional photographer view for the moment. We are trading one type of journalism for another. But we are, we're getting something in return. We're getting hundreds or thousands of people with camera phones and video equipment, inexpensive video equipment, who are showing us what's going on in these places. So as a, as a non-photographer for the moment, I'm seeing a lot of stuff that I wouldn't have otherwise seen. Yeah. So I, I think it's an interesting... I'm, what I'm not getting is the in-depth. That's the difference. You know, I'm getting the superficial. I'm getting the visual without the editorial process. And But there's a trade-off there, too, because... You know, we've talked before about the the impact of, you know, inexpensive DSLRs for video, being able to produce high-def video with equipment that's a fraction of what it cost 10 years ago. So, you know, we're creating opportunities for this at the same time as we're eliminating them. The, the challenge, though, is what about the guy who has to do it to make a living? That's the hard part. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at our, our TWIP support feed, and you know one of the, the comments up there is, I report is infallible. Remember the 2008 report on Steve Jobs' health that proved to be false but caused a drop in the Apple stock? I mean, right. yeah, how many, how many gazillions of dollars were lost based on somebody making a mistake you know, that wasn't a quote-unquote real journalist? And then you know, another comment up there is, like, I mean, other than like around the election time, you know, that's really for me. I mean, and I may be a unique case, but that's really the only time I really watch CNN religiously is when they're doing the speeches and, you know, the presidential candidates are speaking and that sort of thing. I'm not the guy that has it on all the time. So I don't know, Bruce, is it, or Doug, is it time for just like, you know, there's in the tech industry, there's these companies like like 500 picks came on and it looks like Flickr's the dinosaur and 500 picks is the new guy. And then there was MySpace and then Facebook came on. It looks like they're the new guy and then there'll be somebody else. Is it time for the CNN to kind of jump the shark and then some new, you know, kind of reimagining of news gathering organization to come on the scene and show us how it's really done? It's, it's happening. I mean, CNN came in. They were the new guy, whatever that was, 30 years ago. And um, there's no reason that they can't be replaced by something new, too. 
I agree. Absolutely. Bruce, I think you should start Clark in in. <laughs> Clark in in. This is Clark in in. Yeah. This is Clark in in. Fair and balanced news <laughs> for the for the discerning Canadian. <laughs> sure. Make checks payable to Bruce Clark. I'll be happy to <laughs> get it going. Yeah, well, we'll continue, of course. I mean, This Week in Photo is weekly, right? So we'll continue to follow this and, you know, as things change in the industry, this is a big milestone, I think. CNN laying off photojournalists, 50 staffers over there, um, just saying, hey, pack up your stuff and take your plant and get out of here. You know, I think that's that's huge. Um, but, you know, as a as ourselves, as sort of, I don't know if we're a news gathering organization, we're more of a news commenting organization. (laughs) We will comment on the news as it continues to develop and bring that to our legions of listeners. So interesting story. The next story is also interesting. This is about, and I, you know, (laughs) really I'm looking forward to talking about this because this is about a camera shop that this comes from Petapixel, you know, our friends over at Petapixel.com. This is about a camera shop that charges $30, a $30 explanation fee and i'm holding up quote fingers an explanation fee for handling its camera so if you go into the store and you're like you know what i want to see that nikon d7000 or that canon 5d whatever it costs 30 bucks in order for them for you to handle it and for them to sort of explain what's going on bruce what why are they doing this and is it ethical and is it even legal Ugh. Oh boy. Well, I'm not a lawyer for one. So <laughs> you just I have play no one idea. on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I just play one on the podcast. So I have no idea if this something like this is legal. I mean, hey, it's their retail brick and mortar shop. I guess they're free to charge whatever they want to charge, I I guess. Um, but you know, obviously they're they're reacting to all these people going into basically test drive the products and getting their grubby, dirty little hands all over their gear, and then turning around and going home and buying it, you know, uh, online, <laughs> and they're not making any money. I knew they were going to catch on to my technique. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, you know, I can I can put myself in the shoes of the retailer, and I can I can see their side of things. They're paying rent and staff and and electricity and everything else, and bringing in the product, and then you're turning around. You're know, not saying you specifically. But you know, people are going turning around and to save you know fifty bucks are, are buying it on online, and so I can see their point. But I think the way they're reacting to it by charging a handling fee is a little bit like the uh, RAA and the way they responded to music. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just going to drive people even further out of the door uh, yeah. to, to come in. And I, I, I just an interesting email crossed my inbox this evening. Uh, the rumors are heating up that Amazon may be looking to open up retail shops oh, awesome <laughs> wow awesome i don't know doug you know for me but you know i look at camera shops and i go into keeble and check it there there that's a, a local camera store in palo alto california and i go in there from time to time to geek out and there's also a camera store in san jose called oddly enough san jose camera then i'll go in and you know look at their light stands and look at the new bags or you know that kind of thing but I very rarely buy anything in there. I mean, like if I'm, it's an emergency and I'm like about to shoot something and my, I need a, another CF card, I may go in there and buy one, but I know I'm paying too much for it when I go in there. So it becomes like, don't go in there to buy anything. Just go in there to look at the atoms. And if you want to buy something, get online and, and move electrons around. You know, so that's what brick and mortar has become to me as a photographer. What about you, Doug? Well, what, why is it? Is it price? Is that why you turn to B&H or Adorama? Because I feel like I'm being taken. I feel like whenever I, whenever, like if, here's a perfect case, here's a perfect example. 
and I'm sorry, Keeble and Check It, to call you out on this, but it's your own fault. So I <laughs> I needed a HDMI cable to go from my Nikon D7000 to a projector. Simple. HDMI cable, you know, six foot, whatever. And I looked on Amazon, and I found them for, I mean, they range from, like, and I talked about this on the show, from, like, I don't know, next to nothing. You know, the shipping was more than the cable to... I don't know, 20, 30 bucks or whatever for like the gold plated, you know, comes with a pimp hat and a cane version, you know, and <laughs> like, I'm like, okay, there's my range. Okay, I could pick one. And oh, look at that one it has the prime logo. I can get it. It'll be here in two days. So I decide since it was kind of a time sensitive issue, I needed it relatively quickly. I'm like, okay, let me call up Keeble and Chuck it and see if they have it. I got to go to, you know, by Palo Alto soon anyway. I'll just swing by and grab it. I call these guys up and they're like, oh yeah, $75 for this cable. I'm like, wait a minute. It sounded like you said $75. (laughs) Even $7.50? No, $75. And I said, you know, this is on Amazon. This is why I told the guy on the phone. I said, you realize this is on Amazon for next to nothing, you know, and I could order it and have it the day after tomorrow. It's like, yeah, well, that's what our price is and you'll pay it. So, You know, looking at things like that, it's like I feel like going into, unfortunately, going into a brick and mortar dealership for camera gear. I feel like it's almost like going to a car dealer where, you know, you you go in there feeling like they want to take you, you know, and you're going to be paying more. Whereas if I go online, if I go to B&H, if I go to Amazon or whatever, I feel like it's it's competitive because they know I have the opportunity to do my research online and then come and make an informed decision. I feel like people that go to like the the people that the brick and mortar stores expect to be coming in, they know that you're probably you probably haven't done a lot of research, so they can charge you whatever the heck they want. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What, what do you guys think? Well, you picked. I mean, you picked also with cables, probably one of the highest margin items in a retail store. I mean, mm-hmm. they're just an incredible ripoff. And just as a totally side thing, I've been buying amazon's branded cables you know they come with amazon logos and they're really cheap and they're really good mm-hmm. so that's a it's a good one i it certainly is price i was thinking about how often i do just what you said you do at uh, knas knas and it wasn't as often as i thought i said how often do i go to the local camera store and then shop online attends it turns out i do the shopping online without going to the store at all yeah but the other big thing that's going to change here of course is the sales tax issue you know here in california we're in the in the eight percent range and um you know amazon just uh settled and on september 15th they're going to start collecting sales tax here in california yeah and that's you know eight percent is a big chunk of it for Mm -hmm. those of us who have been trying to save that in the past and i checked on this it turns out that the only states that um the online vendors or Amazon collects for are Washington, New York, Kentucky, Kansas, and North Dakota. Um, so that's a change that's going to be coming. And that 8% could make enough of a difference to swing some of the business back to the local merchants because it's certainly an unfair advantage. As much yeah. as I love not paying it, it's a it's an unfair advantage. I don't know. I mean, for me, I mean, even that, I mean, for, I don't know, maybe I'm weird, but the other thing is like I go in there and I just feel like, I don't know. I feel like it's it's... Then this, you know, I'm generalizing. Of course, I can't speak for the entire country and all the brick and mortar stores, but it just feels like, like, especially if I go into like a Keeble and Chuckett type store, unless I go to the guy that I know there, 
it's almost like, oh, yeah, this guy doesn't know anything about photography. And here he is coming in here. You know, I should be talking to real clients. Who is he? You, you know, I don't I don't feel like I'm like I'm a, a, a customer. You know, I feel like I'm a nuisance when I go. <laughs> you, need, you need a better camera store. I, well, hey, show me one. <laughs> that's, yeah. Yeah. That's why I go online, because then it's you know, I go in, I find what I want, I buy it and then I'm off and doing something else. You know? That's true. It's true. And, you know, to be honest, you know. I get better return policies online than I get at the camera store too. Yeah, I don't know, Bruce. Mm-hmm. Bruce, what about in, in Canada? Do you get do mm-hmm. you get that feel of like you know you go into a ta- camera store and you just feel like they're going to overcharge me, but I really need this thing right now because I have a shoot tonight, so I'm going <laughs> to take it. Yeah, I mean, I've got a really good camera store here that I kind of frequent uh, far too often, and uh, <laughs> you know, walk in and I feel it's like a set of cheers sometimes, <laughs> Bruce. <laughs> so I'm in there. Far too often, but um, mm-hmm. you know, I I, I want to support my local retailer. So you don't buy online, then you go to that camera store. You're you you well, frequent that more than you frequent Amazon or B and H. Canada, because of course it, we have to pay the the duty and the customs and the shipping, and and by the time you do all that, sometimes it you know doesn't amount to as big uh-huh. of a difference. Right. Um, there was a time, I mean, when the when the Canadian dollar was at par or even better than the US dollar, uh, you know, you were talking, you know, fairly significant dollars if you were buying, you know, bigger pieces of equipment. So, yeah, there were times when I would go in and look at something and then turn around and order it on B&H and and I would still save myself, you know, a couple hundred dollars. Certainly I I buy things like memory definitely way cheaper i can order i just ordered for uh for a trip i ordered two 32 gig cards and i got two of them for the same price it would have cost me to buy one here at my local camera shop so i mean i'd love to support the local camera shop as much as possible um because they're really good and and you know i've established a good relationship with a few people there so i know if i have a certain question or i want to look at a a piece of gear um or i'm in a i'm in a pinch and i'm going to need something you know i know they're going to sort of come through for me by having that relationship, um, but there's times when I'll look, and if it's a commodity item like memory or something like that, I you know I'll if it's a few hundred bucks, I'm going to go online and, and order it and bring it in. So it just depends on what the item is. Um, but I you know it's it's tough because you want to support the local guys and and you know they have that product knowledge, they have the ability to hand you know hands on. It's really tough to buy something like a bag online. You know, like I want to go in and and open it up and bring my stuff and, you know, see is everything that I have going to fit into it and all the rest of it. So there's certain things that I think I still need that brick and mortar retail experience. But other stuff, yeah, you know, you know, no qualms about buying it online. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, back to what the story was about. So camera shops are charging or this particular camera shop is charging $30 as an explanation fee you know, for handling the cameras. I don't know. I don't know. It's if they need to do that, like you were saying, Doug, this may, or, or Bruce, <laughs> I think it was you saying, you know, I think this is, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it might be them bailing water on the deck of the Titanic kind of thing. You well, know, imagine, imagine what this shop's customers think, you know, they're talking, the customers talking, say, you know, well, yeah, you can go down there, but they charge you $30 to look at a camera. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is. Let's uh, go to another camera store. Yeah. Well, this is this is a pretty adversarial stance, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's it's it's. Uh, I don't like you, customer. You're you come yeah. in the door and you're a suspect. You know, rather than hey, how you doing, Doug? Come on in. Hey, yeah. what kind of camera are you looking for? You know, it's what do you want to see? Are you, did you steal anything? <laughs> yeah, this is, this would never happen in Canada. Yeah, it would. Never, in Canada, in, in Canada, this, we don't need, we, 
The camera stores are too nice in Canada. That's why. We don't even lock our doors at the camera stores, actually. <laughs> They're open all 24 hours, even though there's nobody there. It's, I don't know. It, it reminds It just sort of reeks of, like, uh, Fry's Electronics here in the Bay Area. You know, you go in there, and you, f- you get substandard service trying to find what you're looking for, and then you try – when you leave, they you're have to check your bag to make, you, to make sure you didn't steal anything. You know? It's like the, your customers are – you're treating your customers like crap. You know? yeah, you're, you're, you're guilty before you walk in the door. Exactly. You know? <laughs> yeah. You walk in, and the greeters make – contact with all the customers because they have a lower percentage of theft if you make eye contact with them so hi how you doing bruce you know welcome to walmart <laughs> yeah but you know what you still go there don't you uh only at gunpoint you know <laughs> okay. I, i'm like it's a hostage situation if you take if i have to go into fries electronics <laughs> otherwise i'm somewhere else or i'm online yeah that, but that's me all right, guys, uh, before we go into the next story, I want to take a moment to remind our audience about our wonderful Facebook and Google Plus pages. You can join our conversation, you know, submit your questions to us, your comments and more. Just check us out at Facebook.com forward slash This Week in Photography. And I've shortened the URL to get to our Google Plus page because they haven't done the whole special shortening thing yet. And just to get to Google Plus, just go to um, fvj.me slash twip plus. That's fvj.me slash twip plus. And that'll take you to the This Week in Photo Google Plus page. And if you want to find my personal Google Plus page, please be my friend there. It's fvj.me slash plus. And that'll take you to my page. All right, guys, let's move on to story number three. This is really interesting because it's, you know, one of our family members is involved in this. So Yahoo, Bruce, I want you to take us through this one. Take us through this, set up the story and tell us why it's important. Sure. So basically, um, Yahoo released its 2011 year in review recently. And the sort of the insider scoop on that is that Ernest, who was uh, formerly working on the show notes for us and involved in putting the show together with TWIP, had to leave us a couple of months ago for a, a secret project. He wouldn't reveal what it was. It's but covert. Uh, yeah. It was covert. He was on a secret mission. But it turns out that Ernest was actually uh, the photo editor for the 2011 year in review. So he was responsible for finding and pulling all the photographs to put together what some of the top uh, stories were for 2011. So that's uh, we'll put a link to it in the uh, in the show notes so you can check it out and see. But uh, the top search, quick quick guess without peeking at the show notes, what do you what do you think it was? Uh, I, I peeked, so you're gonna have to say. Did it. you peek? <laughs> yeah, oh, okay. yeah, we all peeked. Okay, well, it was, it was the top search uh, for 2011 was the iPhone. Uh, surprise, surprise. Yeah. Uh, and the top news story was actually the Casey Anthony trial. Oh, wow. So those are some of the top news stories. And then sort of related to this was that uh, BuzzFeed also uh, recently published its list of the 45 most powerful images of, of 2011. So I thought this was sort of interesting. And I, you know, I was looking back through a lot of these stories and a lot of these images, and I was like, oh, yeah, that did all happen this year. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> was, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. You look through these images, and you're like, yeah, that was all 2011. <laughs> this was, this was a, a, a like if you look at 2010, 2011, there's so much that happened in these just these these two years on the planet. It's just mind-boggling. It's crazy. It really is. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so yeah, definitely check that out. We're going to link to this to the the 2011 year in review from Yahoo that Ernest, our former Twip staffer has put together. Uh, we'll link to that from the show notes. And uh, so, yeah, definitely go over there and check it out. 
I wanted to know from you guys what, uh, Doug, you had shared sort of what your sort of most memorable image, I guess, maybe that either you took or, or from this year. Um, maybe you want to share that story with us. I thought it was really interesting. I didn't realize, uh, didn't realize this. So Yeah, I, I, uh, I decided to take a vacation. My wife and I went to Egypt in January. And um, our second day there was January 25th, the first day of the Egyptian Revolution. Oh, and wow. we were we were in Tahrir Square when it started. We were in the Egyptian Museum, and uh, our hotel was overlooking the square. And I discovered myself in Cairo with uh, a brand-new D7000 that I had never used for video and, um, and a tripod. And said, uh, "Well, I better quick learn how to use this because this is all going on." <laughs> how do you right activate the video mode? <laughs> right, you were the citizen journalist. I was the citizen journalist, so uh, you know I had to fire up the uh, the D seven thousand with video and uh, to shoot wide open late at night to get some footage. But uh, I shot uh, some stills and video, and uh, it, you're right; that's hard to imagine. That was this year. Uh, that seems like a long, long time ago, but it was a pretty interesting time. It was a, yeah. I mean, it was a tremendous opportunity to be there, to see all this get started, and to meet all the Egyptians or meet many Egyptians involved with this. Yeah. Huh? How about you, Frederick? What was your standout image or? moment from 2011 oh geez you know i'd I'd have to say i don't know but you know i'm looking looking back in my memory banks and the one image that stands out is from trey radcliffe and it's an image of the space shuttle launch Mm. oh yeah remember that did you see that shot he did it's like going through the clouds yeah yeah Yeah. that shot is insane (laughs) so i'd have to make that my pick of uh 2011 Cool. Good choice. Good choice. Yeah. Yeah. Trey, Trey's a, he's a magician behind that camera. I don't know. How about you, Bruce? You know, for me, uh, looking back to those images, uh, a lot of those striking images that came out of Japan, uh, really sort of, uh, touched me. I, I lived in Japan for a couple of years and so it was just really, you know, it was tough to see some of those images and, and, you know, the Mm -hmm. poor folks in the areas that were affected by the tsunamis and, and the earthquake, it was really tough, but just, some incredible images, and I think the one that really stood out was the one of that, uh, it was either sort of a, a cruise ship or a boat, some sort of ferry boat that was on top of a building. Yeah, yeah. It was just, you know, sort of just amazing. Um, That's on the on the BuzzFeed page, yeah. Yeah, on the it's BuzzFeed amazing. page, there was one of the images, so obviously that was, uh, you know, pretty pretty tough to see some of those, uh, so, some of those images. Yeah, yeah, well, it's a big year, and hey, 2012 is next month, <laughs> so we're going to get to do it all over again. <laughs> All right, guys. Um, I got a treat for this episode. I, I, you know what? I, I sent an email. I went to paulcbuff.com. You know, the, he's a the, the the company that's behind White Lightning and Alien Bees, and you know the the lighting that a lot of photographers stand behind, right? So I'm like, you know, I was just sort of poking around their site. Actually, one of one of the the guys, one of our staffers, Sohail Mamdani, was was. Uh, raving about the Einstein light and he's just like it's the best thing since you know I don't know since oxygen so <laughs> like, I'm like okay let me go check this out so I go to the site and I'm like oh they have a contact form here so I sent them a note saying hey Frederick um, you know I'm involved with this podcast this week in photo I think our listeners would be interested to hear what's behind the company and what your philosophy is and what's coming next and all that I wasn't really expecting to get a response but I did, and from Paul C. Buff himself, <laughs> responded and agreed to do an interview. So 
that's what this is. So I, I had a chance to sit down and chat with him. And we talked about the products that they're working on, what's behind them, how do they design them, uh, what's coming next out of the company, and, you know, how do they position themselves, how do they deal with the price perception issue? Because people say, you know, Alien Bees and uh, Paul C. Buff Gear is cheap. So he he came back and sort of explained why it's not. You know, so it's, it's a really interesting interview. So uh, give it a listen and uh, enjoy. I'm here with Mr. Paul C. Buff. He is the founder, the CEO, the owner of the company that goes by the same name as he does, Paul C. Buff Incorporated. And if you haven't heard of them, you've probably you're probably not from this earth. Uh, but they put out some pretty cool products. Um, the, some of his products li- product lines are Alien Bees, White Lightning. Um, the new Einstein product that they that they came out with, and Paul has agreed to come on the show to just sort of you know give us a, an insider look at the company at Paul C. Buff Incorporated and how he comes up with some of these these products that then go on to change a lot of photographers' lives. So, Paul, welcome to this week in photo. Uh, well, thanks for the invitation. Glad to be here. That's it's our pleasure to have you on. Let's start with a little history. So. How did you how did you start in this this crazy world of photographic lighting and gear? Well, the history's uh well, it's pretty straightforward yet pretty obscure and it's probably a good a good model for a lot of people out there that uh are considering uh you know, going into different endeavors and everything. I like to think I did it the old fashioned American way. Uh, what got me into it is I, I, I really was not uh, all that much into photography. Uh, and um, in one of my several marriages, I was married to a fashion designer. And uh, she was wanting to do, or I was wanting to do for her, um, um, fashion shots of, of her clothing and models and so forth. And at that point, uh, the world in the U.S., that was in 19, about 1979 to 1980, at that point in the U.S., the, 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 the lighting world consisted of Vivitar and Nikon mm-hmm. speed lights and Speedatron, Novatron, and um, I guess Photogenics uh, power packs. And very, very rarely at that point they were available in the U.S. Uh, Bowen's Monolites. And Bowen's is one of the few companies that's uh, older than, than our company. Um, we are, by the way, we were founded in 1981 and have been active ever since. Anyhow, as a result of that experience, uh, I couldn't find any, any mention of studio lighting in any of the uh, uh, magazine shelf uh, magazines, and it seemed to be like you had to be an insider and be in the in the professional industry to even to even know what was going on. Then, when you got to that point, uh, the prices were astronomical, uh, and most of the offerings consisted of very very heavy, very low tech power pack and head systems. And I sort of took one look at it and said, I can be better. And, and I do have a, a lot of experience before that in, in uh, designing and manufacturing professional audio equipment for recording studios. Mm-hmm. So, so basically, I, I bought a, uh, 
a Speedatron uh, brown line system and started shooting and analyzing it, measuring it, and said, basically, this thing's a dinosaur, and I can do a whole lot better. So at that point, I spent about a year developing um, a very basic um, studio flash, which was at that point called the White Lightning 130, and it was 130 watt seconds. Um, but it was actually, there's actually <laughs> quite a few of them still in use today. Wow. But basically, uh, it was $139, and, and it had modeling lights and and uh, um, power limited power control. It had one-third, two-thirds, and full power. And uh, that's what got me started. Wow. So, so that that kicked off the product line, and then you 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 designed that, had that thing manufactured, and how did you market it? What was the what was the demand like when you first revealed it? Well, I will say uh, to all those broke people out there, at that point, I had an investment of sixteen hundred dollars in this company, and um, I did all of the. Uh, tooling myself in my garage with drill presses and handmade metal punches and so forth. And I really didn't have a strong desire to go out and find a distributor and, and do it the conventional way. I really don't believe in the conventional way. So at that point, uh, I started, my first advertisements were in Shutterbug Magazine at that point, Shutterbug was like a trader's post, and it was mostly used equipment, and uh, the ad rates were reasonable, and I figured, well, if they're buying used equipment, I'll put mine in there, and my, my new equipment is cheaper than most of the used equipment, so that's where I started. Yeah. Uh, and, and I did that uh, for about six months, and finally a writer in one of the major photo magazines contacted me and wanted to review the White Lightning 130, and I said, sure. Uh, he did. I remember his name was David Brooks. I don't remember the name of the magazine. Um, as soon as he reviewed it, and he reviewed it pretty positively, then I, I really started getting um, um, enough orders to call myself a business. Prior to that, uh, uh, I just you know, kept the doors open. Uh, and at that point, I started getting dealer requests and I started granting them. So between 1981 and 1986, we developed um, with the White Lightning line, which had evolved somewhat upward to the White Lightning 5000 and White Lightning 10,000, which were just uh, slightly improved versions of the original. Um, we ended up with about 400 uh, dealers in the U.S., uh, small camera stores that existed at that time that most of them don't, no longer do exist. And, but we still primarily sold uh, direct-to-customers. And is that, the same, is that the same as today? Are you still primarily direct-to-customer? Uh, no, we've, we've changed. We're entirely direct-to-customer now, and I'll yes. tell you, when and how that change occurred. Um, for the first uh, four years or so of doing this, um, I was learning the industry. I was learning the business. I was learning what photographers wanted. I had had no real contact with with a lot of professionals. So in 1986, uh, I really put a lot of development effort into a much more advanced uh, product line called the White Lightning Ultra Series, 
And the Wild Lightning Ultra Series, in my mind, some will agree and some will disagree, but uh, in my mind, is the forerunner of almost every monoflash that's out there. And, and it, someone looks at history, it looks at the, what came out at what time. Um, most most monolites made by other manufacturers are, to some degree, a copy of the White Lighting Ultra Series. Uh-huh. At, the, at the time we did the Ultra Series, we were actually pretty fed up with dealers because dealers never carried stock. They blamed any problems on us. They told customers that, well, it's going to take weeks to get it repaired and so forth, and it really didn't. It took a day or two. So anyhow, I made the decision at that time to go 100% direct sales. And uh, by then, we had enough um, satisfied customers. We had enough of a customer base uh, where it was it was quite well accepted, and we've been doing that ever since. So, Paul, you went. So, you started 1981 with around 1,600 bucks, um, and now it's about it's almost 2012. How big is the company now, people wise? We, we we try our darndest to keep it below 50 people. We're right at 50 people, and uh, of course, there are a lot of of, of people outside the company um, as as uh, partners. Uh, we have an assembly plant in Kansas that does uh, all of the robotic uh, assembly of the circuit boards. That's one change we made along the line as we went from hand-soldered components uh, done in-house or with, with home vendors. Uh, we switched over to more modern surface mount and uh, surface mining can't be done by people at home with a solder yard. So, so we went to a, uh, a company in Kansas, and uh, we've probably built that company. They do a tremendous amount of work for us. So, so right now, most all of the board assembly is done in Kansas with with the robotic assembly. Then the board assemblies come back to us, and we. Um, assemble the final product and do all the testing and all the shipping and all the repair in Nashville. Gotcha. Gotcha. So then let's, let's jump from there. That's a perfect segue into design. So how, how do these products come into being? Do you hire like, you know, some, some MBA product designers to come in and, and design the things and then you approve them and put them out? What's your, what's your flow for getting this, getting these products from, from concept to the market? I wish I could, and that is a big that that is the the very hardest problem that we face with the company is is in thirty years of doing business, we have never been able to hire a product designer that's capable of, uh, of actually designing a product. So all through our history, I have designed all of the products. I do all the conceptual design. I do uh, all of the analog circuitry design. Uh, we have to go out on our new products to consultants to do the uh, microprocessor and programming and, and LCD display design. And, and I'm, t- I'm too old. I, uh, I'm 75 years old, by the way. Uh, and uh, so I, I uh, am not skilled in programming and I, d- I really don't have the time or inclination to get into it. Yeah. But basically I end up having 
no choice but to but to do all the concepts. I do all of the accessories. I do uh, uh, all of the CAD drawings, all of the mold drawings. And as I say, uh, um, the, the vast majority of the electronic design, I do have a staff in-house with, with uh, an old friend, uh, Mike Morgan, who is a Ph.D., and he's a good engineer, but uh, he is not capable of creating a concept and a product from start to finish. So he assists me in, in, in getting these things uh uh, put together on circuit boards. I don't like circuit board drafting anymore. It's too <laughs> time consuming, so forth. Yeah. So that's basically our flow. And then, then when it gets uh, to certain areas uh, beyond beyond Mike's uh, capabilities, then, then then we go out to consultants to have the various aspects of it done. Got it. Got it. Oh, that's great. So then, so then, let's talk a little bit about the demographic that you're you're going after, like the people. You know the, the the pricing. Well, let's let's start with pricing. So, you know, looking at the your your monolights and your products, and even the light modifiers, everything seems to be much less expensive than you know some of the the more competing products like the Pro Photos and all those guys of the world. How and why are you positioning like that? You know, with the with the lower price, and and how are you able to do that? That is that is an extremely important subject, and uh, um, the basis of that is the direct sales. And uh, you know, I could spend three hours explaining it, but but let's say I'm a conventional manufacturer like a Profoto or or like anyone else that you can buy their product through B and H and other outlets like that. If if they if their product costs them a hundred dollars to build, they they have to sell it to a dealer. Uh, well, let's let, let me back up. If our product costs us a hundred dollars to build, we're operating at a very high cost of goods, but but we make it up by a very high volume. So typically, if we have a product that costs us a hundred dollars to build, uh, we have about. Uh, a 50% cost of goods, which is astronomical in the industry. And usually it's around 20 to 25%. Yeah. But uh, anyhow, our, our, our $100 cost gets sold for $200, and that $200 pays um, the whole company, the advertising, the, the overhead, all the salaries, and so forth, so forth, so forth. Now, that is the direct sales model. So, so the $100 cost ends up costing the customer $200. If we were uh, operating conventionally with conventional distribution, uh, that $100 would be sold to the distributor in whatever form he might be in for the same $200, giving us the same profit margin. Uh, But the the dealer would then mark that two hundred dollar price up by around forty percent. So it's almost, it's almost like you're you're selling you're you're able to sell cheaper because you're you're almost selling you're like direct to consumer like you said, but it's it's almost a wholesale kind of deal, right? It is absolutely wholesale. We have no no one is taking any portion of our profit. 
uh, it all comes to us. And, of course, we, we have to pay for that with increased advertising. Uh, we have to have a very, very uh, elaborate customer service department, which we do. We have uh, about eight uh, dedicated customers who are on the phone. Uh, I'm going to repeat that. <coughs> We have about eight customer service people who are on the phone every day, uh, and they uh, communicate with customers. They're very educated in what the product does and how to use it and so forth. Uh, but uh, honestly, that that is not a t tremendous expense compared to the expense of, of passing on a 40 or 50 percent price increase um, through a dealer network. Yeah. So typically, if if we were to sell this product that we sell for two hundred dollars uh, through a dealer network without going through all the math, the 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 MSRP price would end up being about four hundred dollars. The dealers would probably discount it down to about three hundred fifty dollars, and that's the primary difference. Is is our product? The customer pays two hundred dollars for it. The same product through a dealer network, you would likely pay three fifty for it. Wow! Uh, yeah, which means it's it's within the reach for a lot of amateur photographers and people that aren't willing to to or unwilling or unable to put down gigantic sums of money for lighting, right? It is. Uh, that's not really the intent of it. The intent of it is the model works so much better for us. Because we don't have accounts, we don't have accounts receivable. We're fortunate that we that we're all cash now. We have we have plenty of, of capital, so we don't have any accounts payable. And the the main thing that is really uh, I think aids to the to our success in this is that we are able to provide one-on-one -on -one contact with the customer. So every customer that buys our light buys it from us. Uh, if they order uh, through the Internet, they may or may not talk to us, but most of them do, and we're always available to talk to. When am I going to get this? Uh, am I using it right? And they they range from rank amateurs to ultra-professionals. And uh, 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 going through a dealer network, you can't call a store and ask any any sort of deep technical questions about a product because honestly they don't know much about that product. Yeah. Now, now, so so is it is it correct that you're not selling through Amazon.com either? Your everything is coming through your website. Absolutely correct. Uh, wow. wow, that's that's amazing. Any plans to to use Amazon in the future, or are you just going to no. keep the model? And we're going through that and have been for several years because we're building. Uh, products with a very high international demand, but we we can't sell direct from the U.S. to to Czechoslovakia at the same price that that we sell in the U.S. Yep. Obviously, because we do then have to go through exporters, uh, uh, duties, taxes, shipping costs, and we have to have to do it properly. We have to have some sort of service center there, which we don't have. So it's just really impractical for us to consider uh, building the, that into the pricing, uh, because if we were to if we were to build into our pricing uh, on, enough uh, 
dealer discount to allow that to happen, our U.S. price would be almost double what it is. So we're not about to give up our our, our U.S. market share, which is very very high. It's in the in the range of sixty percent of the entire U.S. market. Wow! And that in that segmented, how is that? Amateur photographers or amateurs and pro? No, I mean we we are basically a professional company. And we we build, uh, I would call it maybe minimalist professional equipment. We, we try to uh, uh, avoid excess bells and whistles and, and uh, functionally um, our products actually are, above, are beyond the competition in, in, in most aspects technically. Uh, so our our target market is everybody, and 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 when we started in the in the mid '80s with the White Lightning Ultra Series, our primary customer base was professionals and uh, semi pros and portrait studios and Madison Avenue, uh, and largely was oriented toward professionals. But as time has gone by and as uh, digital cameras have come out. And particularly since we came out with the alien bees, um, our market, I would say, is is is, is uh, probably 50% um, amateur, 50% professional, with all gradients in between. That's great. Now, is is alien bees your number one seller right now? Absolutely. And uh, alien bees was. Uh, <sighs> I, I like to say it was the only time in my life I've actually, actually done a business plan or a marketing plan. And uh, in the in the late 90s, uh, we had about a 25% market share in America. Photogenics had about a 25% market share. Everybody else had the other 50%. Um, and I decided to do a grand experiment and because things were beginning to get quite price conscious at that point. So I decided to do a grand experiment to do a, uh, a basically the same technology that's in a White Lightning Ultra in a lower-cost package. They're, they're Lexan, and people say cheap plastic, and believe me, Lexan is not cheap plastic. It's very expensive plastic. But basically, we... we, we did an experiment with a radical light. It comes in pink and yellow and green and, and the standard black. Yep. It's very much advertised toward toward young people. And uh, the industry thought we were crazy when we did it. And uh, within six months of when we introduced Alien Bees, uh, they had a Eclipsed the white lightning sales within two years. They were up about five times what the white lightning sales were. Wow! And part of that, part of the reason for that is, is part of the alien bees process was to say, let's see what happens if we in, actually increase our cost of goods, meaning decrease our profit, uh, for the sake of of of, of selling more, mm-hmm. and. It indeed worked sensationally because uh, um, a, a, an alien bee is uh, a, about 20, 25 percent cheaper 
than a white lightning, but but it's functionally uh, the same. Uh, and and so we did everything we could in the packaging and everything to to do cost savings. But then we went ahead and let our selling price be much lower than than economics would have dictated. Now, Paul, on a from a on a marketing standpoint, looking at it from you know people, they're they're. Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of marketing and and looking at how people perceive things and the psychological triggers. One of the things that people key on is price, right? So if they're looking at white, say alien bees, and it's it's this much money versus say a competing product, which is three times as expensive, that whole price perception thing's going to kick in. Even though it's functionally the same thing, they're going to say, "Well, that one's more expensive, so it's better. I'm going to get that one." Have you have you hit that a lot? Absolutely. I mean, that, that, that's, that's the, kind of the backbone of what we do. And actually, as I say, it's not a three-to-one price difference when you're comparing to White Lightning. It is when you're comparing to Profotos and Elencroms and so forth. Yeah. But uh, compared to our White Lightning, it's only about a, a, a 20% savings. But that 20%, believe it or not, causes... Uh, the, the the division in sales to shift toward the product that's twenty percent cheaper by six to one. It's incredible. It's right. it's, it's really hard to imagine that it would be that great, but it is. Yeah. Have you seen any softness in the in the market since the recession hit? I mean, because a lot of people are saying that photographers, strangely enough, there's been. Uh, an increase in the number of amateur photographers because people are getting laid off and they're like, oh, I'm going to pursue my passion of photography now. Have you seen that? We have seen two sides of that. Uh, within our own company, of course, we've done a lot of new products during this recession. We have seen uh, every year about a 20% increase in sales. Uh, at the same time, uh, I don't have privy to the books of, of our competitors but uh, every sensation I have is that the that the Profotos, Nalincroms, and the competitors have probably had a twenty percent de- decrease every year. Yeah. So the market is definitely shifting from the the very high end, very stodgy products down to the practical products such as we make. Yeah, because when you look at that photo in the end, no one cares or knows what kind of light made it, just like they don't know what kind of camera made the shot, right? No, that's right, and and but it's a double-edged sword because their price is so much lower than than particularly the European lights. There tends to be a you get what you pay for mentality, mm-hmm. and 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 you know we cannot convince them the reason the price is low is because of the direct sales. They uh, a good many forum posters and everything are just convinced if it's cheap it must not be as good. Yep. Uh, so so we deal with that. We know it's as good, uh, and particularly with the Einstein, uh, the Einstein is without question the most advanced light in the world period at any cost well i want to definitely i want to talk about that so the einstein is is the latest release from from uh paul c buff incorporated so what why why did you make it i mean if if alien bees were doing so well what what niche does the einstein fill well you know the the, the secret to to continuing to grow in business i have found is in introducing new products. And you have to be careful that you introduce 
uh, effective products, you introduce products that have a high potential sales value, and you don't just load yourself up with 27 different models of the same thing. Um, so we absolutely have the the uh, low and mid-range of the market uh, in America absolutely tied up. I mean, we essentially have no competitors in America. Yeah. Uh, but I, I decided that that uh, I wanted to do basically what I referred to as the ultimate monolite. And we've had two divisions sort of in the industry um, of the ultra-high end and, and the lights for the rest of us. In the ultra-high end, um, only one company, which is, is Boncolor or Sonar Braun, is, is the only company in the world that at that point had a high-end IGBT-controlled system. And what the IGBT does is, is, is a dramatic departure from, from standard studio flash technology. Um, it, it actually uh, allows the flash tube to be shut off when when it reaches the power that you want, mm. and by do by doing that, uh, unlike all other mono lights and most power packs, as you reduce the power in an IGBT flash, the flash duration gets shorter and shorter and shorter. In 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 conventional mono lights, as you reduce the power, the flash duration gets longer and longer and longer. So so. There are two real advantages to the IGBT control. Uh, first, that it allows extremely short flash durations. And the second advantage is if you uh, do your processing and the circuit correctly, you can make it pr uh, produce absolutely constant color regardless of its power setting. Wow. And no other no other conventional light can do that and that's a point that's totally misunderstood in all the forums every every monolight that's that's conventional analog control design which includes Profoto and Allen Crom and Hensel and and white lightning and the LNDs um, every single one of them um, as you reduce the power, the, the color temperature falls also. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you have two lights uh, lighting a subject and one is on full power and one is a 30-second power, there's apt to be a three to 400-degree difference in the color temperature of the two lights. But with and the Einstein, for, all the way from, I'm looking at the specs here, from 2.5 watt-seconds all the way up to 640 watt-seconds, it's going to maintain the same color balance? And I've tested it, measured it, photographed it over and over. It's been confirmed over and over. Um, so we, we gain two things. We, we do gain this tremendous uh, increase in the range of power, as you said, from 2.5 watt seconds to 640. Um, and within that range, we have two choices. We, we have the, the, the normal mode, which is constant color mode. So you can set it any place you want. The color does not vary at all. Uh, the flash duration still becomes shorter and shorter as you reduce the power, but not as dramatically as it does in action mode. Yeah. And in action mode, we forget about color um, consistency, and 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 the um, processor uh, sets it for 
absolute minimum flash duration. So if you're stopping um, hummingbirds and things like that, uh, or it, kids, it, uh, well, kids uh, can't move fast enough where where the constant color mode can't keep up with them. Yeah. Even the constant, even the constant color mode, um, we our flash durations go down to one eight thousandth of a second, and that is t point one. And uh, normally, um, when someone states flash durations and they don't put t point one after it, they they, they mean t point five. Yeah. So uh, so uh, uh, the the eight thousand one eight thousandth of a second that we can achieve in constant color mode is equivalent to about a twenty five thousandth of a second in T.5 times, which is what everybody publishes. They're beginning to deviate, and people are, are now beginning to publish T.1, because T.1 is actually the only um, flash duration spec that really relates to, to action freezing. Yeah. Now, Paul, I'm looking, I'm looking at the, the, the still the spec page, and I'm looking at one of the screenshots of the Einstein, and this thing looks like a like it could launch the space shuttle. I mean, it's got, it's got screens on it. I mean, it, this is this thing looks like it is smarter than me. So how yeah. it's it's great. So how and it's still is five hundred bucks, right? So how are you able to right. to get all that stuff in there and still keep it at five hundred? I'm like leading the witness here, but this is this is interesting to me because I'm looking at the I'm looking at it. And I think I'm thinking this this should probably be like twice that but you know take me through what it's for and how you're able to keep it so low well again the, the, the five hundred dollars if if uh alan Crab were, were to make this it would sell for a minimum of a thousand dollars and 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 that goes back to the direct sales equation uh secondly i didn't want this thing to be above five hundred dollars so so we we allowed our profit margin to to to, to become even further eroded from what it is from the LMB simply to uh, to be able to hit that price point. When we started out, the, uh, the Einstein's were costing us about 65% of what we sold them for, which is uh, it's just about a break-even profit point. Over time, we have um, uh, refined the circuitry, uh, found um, components that do the same job for less money, IGBTs themselves uh, 10 years ago were totally cost prohibitive, uh, but they have dropped in price over the past three years by about three to one. Wow. So we're able to do it, and, and it's not easy to do. I spent three years developing it, uh, had to work with consultants, and we, we, we made a lot of uh, engineering screw-ups and had to go back and redo things and, and refine it and... Uh, uh, so we're we're constantly refining the Einstein, and it's getting better and better. And hopefully, we will reach the point that it can be even cheaper. Wow! So the Einstein is the flagship um, product right now, and Alien Bees are the they're the workhorse, correct? And and yeah, White well, Lightnings are the ones that paved the way for for both of these guys. White Lightnings are the are the Cadillacs or John Deere's. They're still around. They're not discontinued. We still sell them. They're still good lights, and they're still uh, a, a, a good value compared to competitors. But effectively, the Einstein will will 
ultimately replace the white lightning line. That's wonderful. Wow. Well, Paul, what's 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 coming next? I mean, to, I know you know you know, you can't can't really talk about unreleased products and that sort of thing, but just give me an idea of where where things might go in the world of lighting. Well, in this conversation, we skipped a whole bunch of things that occurred in the last three years, and um, one of those things is is the PL, PLM parabolic light modifier, mm-hmm. which is uh, um, a totally unique, uh, it's not unique anymore because everybody in town has ripped it off. That's it, that gigantic 86-inch umbrella, right? Yeah, and they go down to 51-inch, uh, there's three sizes, but basically they, they're, they're not designed to function like a normal umbrella. The, the, the basic design of the PLM is is to function like a satellite dish in that it it uh, in the silver models it projects an extremely intense extremely narrow beam of light so it's more it's more like uh, a sports reflector in 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 its beam patterns and so forth mm-hmm. uh, but yet it's gigantic so so the principle is is uh, you you can put a 86 inch um, diameter PLM 10, 14 feet from a subject and, and, and have a, a, a grid lighting effect, but it's coming from an 86-inch source. So it will cover the whole model head to foot. It falls off very rapidly after that, and its output is as much as six and eight times as high as a softbox or umbrella would be. So you get the large source size that you get from a softbox or an umbrella, but you get a tremendous amount of, of, of efficiency, and that becomes really useful when you're out on the beach and things like that, uh, fighting with the sun, and you're 25, 30 feet away from the model, and where other, where other more conventional modifiers might only give you F4 at those distances, you can get F4. 11 F16 uh, wow. outputs when you need them, and you can light objects that are very far away but still have uh, a sufficient coverage to light the subject. It's just that you're not lighting the rest of the world. <laughs> yeah, it's just yeah, it's focused down like uh, focusing a magnifying glass, right, to burn a piece of paper. Right, right. Wow, that's great. Uh, so, so, so we, we did that, and then we did fairly recently. We 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 are the originator of the of the portable power supply, which is a battery and a sine wave inverter. They didn't exist until we came out with the Vagabond 1 in the in the 90s, late 90s. Um, and since then, uh, in the last uh, year, we have developed the, the lithium Vagabond Mini. And, and the Portable power packs that we sold before weighed on the order of 20 pounds. These weigh three and a half pounds. They're tiny, uh, yet they have enough power to uh, to power three or four, even five uh, LNBs or Einsteins or white lightnings, and and get pretty decent battery life out of them. They can do um, about 500 shots. At 640 watt seconds from one light, which is Jeez. which is it's it's typically about triple the battery life that that you're getting from the I don't know all the models, but Elencom and Profoto uh, portable battery systems they typically 
only achieve about 150 full power flashes at that power level. So this thing is, is just tiny as can be. It's inexpensive. It's $239. Uh, the battery is instantly changeable, so if you run out of power, uh, if you have a spare battery, you plug it in, you got another 500 shots. And the lithium technology uh, eliminates all of the problems that that the older systems and, and most of the older systems include the current systems from most manufacturers. They use uh, sealed lead-acid batteries, which are basically a car battery, and they the, 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 the power-to-weight ratio is, is incredibly different, about 5 to 1. And the SLA batteries require constant care. If you go out and you do a shoot and you discharge your battery, if you don't get right back in there and charge it up immediately, within eight hours or so, it starts sulfating. So, so uh, it's very, very common for people to have uh, SLA-powered battery packs that they forgot to recharge and the battery is toast. It's just gone. You have to buy a new one. Now they have a big, they have a doorstop, right? <laughs> Yeah, you have a big heavy doorstop, and and uh, the lithium batteries do not have that that sulfating effect. So you can run that lithium battery down to zero, and and put it in your house and come back three months later and charge it up, and you haven't damaged it. Wow! wow. So we've got light modifiers, we've got um, uh, portable power. Um, what what other accessories can I look forward to coming out of you guys? In particular, and I won't. I don't want to go into too much detail on this, and it's coming along fairly soon. Probably, probably within about three months, um, we have a higher-powered uh, uh, vagabond lithium, which which uh, will recycle the lights about two and a half to three times as fast as the as the mini does. Uh, at uh, not too much of a cost increase. It'll be in, somewhere generally in in the probably three fifty three hundred fifty dollar range. Um, that's that's coming out pretty soon, and and that's very helpful for people that that are are are, are using a lot of flash power and and they're needing to shoot rapidly. Mm-hmm. Um, On location, right? Many will will recycle a, an Alien B. Six six hundred forty watts seconds in about three seconds. Um, if you put two of them on there, it's about six seconds. If you put three of them on there, it's about nine seconds. The 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 vagabond um, we haven't really named it yet that we're coming out with uh, will will cut those cycle times in, in close to a third. So you'd be able to to recycle eighteen hundred watt seconds, uh, which now takes on the order of, of 10 seconds, you'll be able to do that in about three seconds. Uh, the life is about the same, so you still get about the same uh, 500 shots at 640 watt seconds. Wow. Well, Paul, this, is, uh, this has been a pleasure and very educational, um, and I'm, I'm sitting here still staring at this Einstein, so you're going to see an order come in in a couple minutes. <laughs> okay. Well, the Einstein, I mean, you're only partially covered it. The Einstein, uh, and again, this is all done by me. Uh, no, nobody, I can't hire anybody to, to, to 
come up with these concepts. But the Einstein and the Cyber Commander were were designed in conjunction with each other to work together. And it's extremely powerful because the Einstein not only does all of these things, and it displays on the back panel the, the color temperatures and the flash durations, and, and it's infinitely adjustable, but every parameter of that is under radio control with the Cyber Commander. And the Cyber Commander is, is, uh, should go up in price, but it's still $179. And with the Cyber Commander, you can put as many Einsteins out there as you want, up to 16, and control measure, uh, modify each one of them right from your camera, and uh, you can do them in groups. You can, you can bracket the whole bunch of them, or you can bracket a group of them, and it also has a flash meter built into it. So you can go out and, and, and meter each light individually, go back to your camera, and, and, and look at the f-stop you're getting from each light, and if you want to look, if you want to change the uh, power, you don't have to calculate f stops and watt seconds and things. If 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 you metered f11 and you want f8 right in the cyber commander, you just lower it until it says f8. And you can do that with each light individually, or you could do that with the aggregate of all of the lights. So if you've got a setup, and and you're ready to take pictures, and again, you 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 meet your five f five point six at your camera as the aggregate of all lights. Well, you say I want to shoot at f eleven. You just dial it up until it says f eleven, and there's no calculation. There's no going back to the lights uh, to to adjust them. So it's extremely powerful. And that's all from camera position. Is the is the Cyber Commander? Am I going to be able to use that with um, any other heads, or is it specifically for you, Einstein? You can use it with other flash units, even speed lights, but you cannot adjust the power levels, and you can't do all of the things that you can do with the Einstein because they simply don't have the interface to allow it. Right. So you can you can do a mixed system of, of say, Einstein's alien bees, and and Norman lights and so forth. Well, with the Norman lights, you can put them in and out of groups. You can flash, you can meter them, but you can't adjust the power from the cyber commander. After you meter them, you're going to have to go to the light itself to adjust the power. And the same applies with the speed light. You, you can you can set up a group that that contains uh, three out of your five lights, and they can be speed lights and Normans and everything else. And um, uh, turn them off and on in groups and control them in groups, but you can only adjust the power from the, um, from the buff lights. Yeah. And that's one interesting thing. I try to copy Apple's backwards compatibility, which they're getting a little away from lately. But um, the Cyber Commander will do this as far back as a 1986 white lightning. So we even with the 1986 white lightning, uh, the cyber commander can read the flash duration. It can read the the uh, color temperature, and it can set the power up and down. And it, and, and it can it could do about two thirds of the things it could do with an Einstein. There's some things with an Einstein that can't be done with the vintage lights, but the the the, the basics can be. 
and 26 years of uh, backwards compatibility is pretty good. <laughs> that's, <Yeah>. that's pretty good. <laughs> well, uh, I'm a stickler about that. I mean, I am, um, I'm Swiss born. My dad was a Swiss immigrant and I've got Swiss engineering in my blood, I guess. And, and I just happen to have a, 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 a natural talent for one precision electronic design and two, I, I like to think I have a, a, a good um, genes for concepts, marketing, figuring out how customers react, and our whole company is absolutely built on the golden rule, and it's a, it's it's almost absolute. If you're a customer, and and you buy from us, you you will be satisfied, or or you're under no obligation. You can return the product even if you've run over it with your car, and and we'll send your money back. And that that extends for sixty days right now. Wow, that's great. All right. Well, Paul, thanks a lot for taking time out of your uh, your Monday afternoon to to let me pepper you with all these questions. It's been educational, and uh, and congratulations on the product line. And and uh, you've you've honestly, uh, and as you know, you've changed the industry for the better. And I'm looking forward to seeing what's next out of Paul C. Buff Incorporated. Well, I like to think that I've done that, and I try to keep my ego down. I don't consider myself an egotistical person, but I, I do agree with you that I have changed the industry. Uh, I've made it affordable, and fortunately for me, this is coincided at the time that that everybody and his brother has has a $1,000 digital, digital SLR, mm-hmm. and so there's, there's, there's a huge market. That we we dovetail very nicely into, and that's I I'd say some of that is is intuition and planning, and some of it's sheer luck and timing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, sheer luck and timing uh, are nothing if you don't have a, something to action on, right? And you guys well, have all three. Well, that's right. And again, uh, if I come off as egotistical, I will apologize because I try not to. (laughs) No, no, you have every right. So, all right, Paul, thank you so much. Okay, that was Paul C. Buff. You can find out more about the gear that that Paul was talking about, of course, at paulcbuff.com and or just Google alien bees or white lightning or any of that stuff and you'll You'll find um, all the gear that we were talking about in that interview. Interesting stuff. And yes, I did. I did go ahead and order my Einstein light, and it has not come yet. So I'm looking forward to playing. <laughs> looking forward to playing with it. Uh, and did, I'm did excited. You from a local camera store? No, I would. You see, if when you listen to the interview, you'll hear that they don't sell in local camera stores. They only sell mm-hmm. direct to consumer. So that's how that's how he says they keep the prices so low. So okay. I ordered that and the big 86-inch umbrella. So Ooh. <laughs> nice. I've yeah, got how can you take mini. a bad picture with that? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I've got their Vagabond Mini, their lithium battery. Oh, cool. Yeah. Awesome. How's that working out for you? Really good. Really good. Yeah, for uh, on-location lighting, you can, you know, get I get three, 400 pops out of a strobe off of that small lithium. And it's small and really tiny. I can power other stuff off, but it's great. That's crazy. That is just, yeah. that is just crazy. He sounds like quite a character. He is. I mean, Paul yeah. is, you know, you, you've heard it in an interview. I think he said it during the recording, but he's 75 years old, started the company with 1600 bucks in 1981. That's <laughs> and awesome. now they, you know, they pretty much own the photography lighting industry on the bottom end or the bottom to medium size end, you know, and no signs of stopping. So 
yeah kudos to, to alien bees and, and to palsy buff incorporated for doing what they're doing for us all right guys it is time for some listener q a in this segment this is where our guests you guys answer questions that have come in from our audience via the website the forums the facebook group google plus twitter etc and listeners, if you want to get your question in, just use the on any one of those services, use the hashtag pound or the hashtag twip questions to swip, submit your questions. Um, our folks are keeping an eye on those feeds and we'll find the best questions and submit them. Question number one is from Chris Carpenter in the forums. Uh, Bruce, I'm going to throw this over to you first. What do you think? Okay, so I sort of I boiled this down. He he had had quite a. You can go to the forums and see he's kind of the full question because he had a lot of background that he provided on this. But basically, what he's trying to decide between um, is he's looking at the GoPro cameras mm-hmm. um, versus maybe going with a D300S or a D7000 for doing video. So he's um, sort of debating between the, the two of those things and wondering which route he should go. So, I, you know, I I don't know a lot about the the, the, the Nikon stuff, being mm-hmm. a Canon shooter myself, um, but uh, I have checked out the GoPro cameras. Uh, they're pretty neat little cameras. I don't think they're all that expensive. I think they're only you know maybe a couple hundred dollars for uh, for the GoPro uh, cameras. They're basically waterproof, shockproof. Um, you can you can put them on helmets or attach them to your bike. Or I actually had some friends from here who were uh, both uh, pilots, and they did a flight across Canada, and they picked up one and and tied it to the outside of the plane and filmed their whole trip. Uh, nice. Yeah, which is really cool. So I think the GoPro cameras are pretty neat little uh, little cameras and uh, definitely good for capturing um, some video. But obviously, if he wants to do uh, also some stills, I think he had mentioned something about wanting to be able to you know use it in addition to video. He wanted to be able to do some stills of his family and and uh, some product shots. I think he owns a winery or something like that. So he wanted to be able to 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 do some stills and things. So I think if that's the case, then definitely he would want to uh, you know consider looking at, at either the D300S or the the D7000. And yeah. maybe I'll throw it back to you guys, Nikon guys, to see if you. Yeah, have I would. I would say. Um, you know, I don't have a GoPro camera yet, so but I would assume that it's a fixed focal length lens that's at a fairly wide setting. You know, so you're gonna you're gonna basically get everything in focus. Um, but if you're looking for that sort of signature shallow depth of field DSLR look, then you're gonna want to shoot with a proper DSLR with a with interchangeable lenses like a D three hundred. Um, or a D7000. I am a huge fan of the D7000 because I think it's just insanely cool. <laughs> so, I mean, I think it's a price thing. I don't know. Would it, Doug, what do you think? Well, I, I read the, the discussion on the forum and I, I thought that he was talking more about using video for family stuff, you know, typical kids growing up, family event kind of things. And I don't think the D7000 is great for that. You know, it's... Um, it's it's clunkier than using a camcorder. It's certainly clunkier than using a uh, GoPro. It is, yeah. Um, yeah, it definitely takes some thought into... It's it's a photographer's camera. It's not a, hey, I'm, there's something happening, baby's first steps, get the camera thing, right? Right. I mean, you're absolutely right, Frederick, that if you, know, if you want to do cinematic things with shallow depth of field, then there's really not much choice there. Um, but the um, in terms of ease of use and, and taking, you know, quick and dirty family videos, there's really not a comparison. Also, he talked a little bit about he was anxious to go to a full-frame camera and wondering whether he should save his money for that. And I think there's an important thing for, for those of us who have, you know, gone from 
crop sensor to full frame. And that is as, as much as it, you know, we all like the look of the full frame cameras better. Uh, it doesn't fundamentally change the mission of the camera. Yeah. Whereas the difference between a D7000 and a GoPro is a really a fundamentally different mission that the equipment is designed for. So I think that's the issue. Yeah. I, I think you hit it on the nose. If it's, if you're going to be, preparing your scenes and stopping and focusing and planning your shots, then a DSLR is great. Yep. Perfect. All right. We've got question number two here. Uh, let's see. This is from forum member Cobus. He says, I have a bunch of books on technique and composition. I'm becoming reasonably proficient with my camera and with composition. However, I find that I need some creative inspiration and decided to try and find some books along that line. Um, do you guys have any thoughts on books? Well, I, I went through such a similar thing. Not so much that I had books, but, you know, I came into photography with a strong technology background and a weaker creative background. And personally for me, David Dusherman's books have been spectacular, both mm -hmm. the books and the and the electronic books. Um, so I sure would start there just based on my experience. Yeah, craftandvision.com, yeah. right? Yeah. Just marvelous stuff. Yeah. What about you, Bruce? What what do you what do you go to when you like offline? I know you know, not online sites for inspiration, but offline yep. for inspiration. Yeah. Um a couple things I can suggest. One of them is actually a movie. Uh, it's not a book, but it's a it's a movie, and I go back to this and probably rewatch re this movie at least once per year. Uh, mm. It's a movie called Baraka. Hmm. If you've ever seen the movie Baraka, and uh, yeah. it's how do you spell it? Uh, B A R A K A, and it's it's just an amazing video. It was shot, I think, over a span of about three or four years. Um, it was done, I think, in the early 90s or late 90s, I think it was. Um, and it's, it's this incredible high-definition video. It, 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 it's just amazing. Um, and he traveled all around, you know, these filmmakers traveled all around the world um, capturing some really amazing, amazing footage. Um, it was actually 90, 92, I think it was from, or so the early yeah. 90s. And yeah. just, just an incredible, incredible movie. And just really, I found it really inspiring. Um, just from a visual standpoint. And then I also have a number of uh, sort of coffee table books. Um, one of them is a National Geographic book called Through the Lens. Mm -hmm. And it's basically a collection of, of amazing National Geographic images uh, that were shot over a number of years. And it's one of those big, you know, heavy coffee table books that you throw out on the coffee table and uh, people start to, to flip through when they come over. And it's, it, you know, it's a beautiful, beautiful book. And I find, you know, I'll, I'll just sit down through those and flip through them and, and get some inspiration from those things. Or, or like say, I'll sit down and watch, uh, watch Baraka at least once a year. That's cool. I'm going to have to watch that. It's yeah, a great. It, is that on uh, Netflix right now? Can I just rent it? It is. Awesome. All right. I, I'll just, put it in my queue. I just checked. It's going in my queue. <laughs> Add it to your queue. You'll, it's amazing, but if you watch it on a big screen, it's uh, it's pretty spectacular. Awesome, great. That's a great tip. Yeah. You know, my the yeah, I'm a big fan of Peach Pit Press. Not only because I know the folks over there, but they just put out some stunning books. And I was just over there today visiting and um, walked away with a couple of books that I wanted to mention on the show. You know, one of which is my pick of the week, but I'll mention it here since we're already talking about this stuff. But Joe McNally just released another book. It's called Sketching Light, an Illustrated mm -hmm. Tour of the Possibilities of Flash. And I you know, literally I just walked in the house with this thing and I'm just as we're talking, I'm thumbing through it and like, holy crap, I need to go through this book. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, you know, Joe's one of my heroes in terms of like just shooting with small strobe and doing amazing things with strobes and not having a whole studio full of lights in order to make some insanely cool images. And this book just proves it again that he's the master of that. So, yeah, I would definitely check that out, you know, for inspiration. And then another book that I pulled away from those guys is. Uh, it's called Visual Stories Behind the Lens with Vincent LaFerre. So another friend of the show, Vincent LaFerre, has a new book out. So definitely go check that out. And uh, we'll link to both of these titles in the show notes. But amazing. I mean, this is this is a holiday reading for sure. So, yeah, be sure to check these things out. You, you know, while you mentioned uh, Joe, I have to take the advantage and do some name dropping. A couple of days before I got sick and went in the hospital, I got to go to Alcatraz with Joe with the uh, Keeble and Shout thing. Uh, oh, cool. Yeah, thing. how was that? And it was great. There were 40 people, had Alcatraz all to ourselves, and it was a terrific evening. Wow. And you managed is, to he, escape. Yeah, yeah, I did. He's, he is absolutely the master of the strobe. The Isn't he? Strobe. I mean, oh, that, you yeah. know, I, I've got his other books, you know, and, you know, when I when I look through those books, and I've got his DVD sets, too, and you, you look through those, and it's just like, there's so much that you can do with small strobes. I mean, in photography in general, it's just an infinite kind of experience of, of the things that you can do with small, big, medium-sized lighting, whatever. But then you look at these, the technology that's in these small strobes on the Canon and the Nikon side, and you're like, you know, there's, there's so much stuff that you could do before you hit the limitations of these systems that you could fill a lifetime almost. You know, so it's it's exciting to me. You know, that stuff just sort of blows me away. And this book illustrates that because it's an illustrated tour of the possibilities of Flash. So yeah, it's very interesting. I'd highly recommend that. All right, guys, before we move on, I want to give a nod to our sponsor, Squarespace.com. They're the fast and easy way to create a high-quality website or blog. And as we've been saying, you know, if you haven't tried them out yet, um, you know this stuff. I mean, uh, Squarespace has an easy-to-use user interface for creating and managing your web presence. It's The site is designed specifically for people that don't know anything about CSS, um, and that pe- for people that know what CSS is, it's, they've got all these design templates integrated into the site so that, you know, you have this idea in your head, you can find a good starting point and then edit that starting point to make it exactly fit what you need. And then using your iPhone or iPad, you can update your site on the go. And as you're in that development process, the cool thing is they have like on line resources and support, a support team to give you personal help 24 hours a day, seven days a week. All these different modules that you can add to your site, like a blog module, form builder, Flickr, Twitter integration, on and on and Google. It goes on and on and on. And the cool thing about Squarespace is everything that I just mentioned is in the cloud, right? So it's not like you have to install something on your computer or you have to understand how servers and FTP and all that magic works. It's all easy. You just go to the website, you log in, and you're building your website. So definitely check it out. If you like a free trial, just head over to squarespace.com. You don't need a credit card or any of that magic. You sign up for a free account, try it out, build your website. Then if you decide that, hey, I like this thing, I want to keep it, use the offer code TWIP12, that's TWIP12, and you'll get 30% off your new account for three months. That's squarespace.com with the offer code TWIP12. 
All right, guys, uh, we are at that time of the show where each of you, our guests, gives their pick of the week. Remember, a pick can be software, hardware, gear, workshop, whatever, as long as it is somehow tangentially even related to photography. Doug, you have not been on the show since the beginning of time, so I want to throw it to you first. What is your pick of the week? Well, my my picks are things that we've talked about on the show before, but it's just something that came up recently for me. Uh, having to do with your rights as a photographer. One is uh, just a link. It's an ACLU webpage, Know Your Rights Photographers, and there'll be a link in the show notes for that. And also a book by Carolyn Wright called The Photographer's Legal Guide. You can buy it in softcover for 20 bucks or a PDF for $10. And I recommend both of them for any photographer who's Wants to be one of those eye reporters, for example, or uh, <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> thinks they're likely to be uh, out on the street and wants to know what they should be able to do and what they shouldn't. Awesome, great pick. Thanks, Doug. All right, Bruce, what do you got? I've got a couple of picks. Actually, I'm going to call a quick audible. Uh, just a reminder that Saturday is Help Portrait. Excellent. So for those those are that are involved in Help Portrait, uh, good Where luck can to everyone. Go to find out more about Help Portrait. Uh, I believe it's Help dash portrait.com is the website and we'll put a link over to that in the show notes as well but okay. my my gear pick uh is a couple of items that uh, i recently caught my attention on photo jojo which is a, a dangerous a site to go to for photographers because there's so <laughs> totally much fun is. neat stuff on danger, there. So, danger. <laughs> one that i just saw well one that i ordered actually a couple of weeks ago and it, i just got the notice that it's shipping are these um cf and sd uh, card readers for the ipad so rather than having to have the camera connection kit, these are basically small little uh, dongles that will plug into the bottom of your iPad. What? And there's one for CF cards and one for SD cards. And for so, CF cards too? Oh. Yes. So you plug it in the bottom and then you can pop the CF card right in the bottom and then, and then load your um, images from your CF card onto your iPad. For 30 Without bucks. 30 bucks and 15 bucks for the SD reader or both yeah. of them for 40 bucks 40 bucks yeah you get the pair so i was like <sighs> buy it <laughs> thanks so Bruce. It appreciate that taking money out of my pocket right <laughs> yeah yeah and then hey, i got else i was... gotta i gotta warn you about one thing though bruce because i have those okay and um the some of my cards didn't work in the cf one my Ooh. my fast 32 gig cards did not work what Ooh. what's the manufacturer of your cards done uh, I knew you were going to ask me that. I will open up my little thing right now here, and I will tell you my wallet says they are. Oh, wait a minute. It's in the camera. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing to your camera? Go on. Okay. What is... <laughs> my 32 is a Transcend 400X. Oh, okay. Okay, I got a couple of those. Those did not work, but my, uh, what's it, the Lexar 16 gig 200X did work in there. Oh, good. I'm safe because I use Lexar. Awesome. Okay. Perfect. Right. I use Lexar as long, too. As long as you got the slow ones, as long as you don't have the 400. No, I have the fast ones. Crap. Okay. But oh. but um, they may, I don't know. I don't have that one. But anyway, uh, the price was so good, I'm glad I got it anyway. But you just got to remember to check your cards before you go out on the road. You're yeah. on a job. You think you're going to use the iPad. And it hey, it's work. Christmas time. I'll buy them. If it doesn't work, I'll gift it to somebody. Perfect. There you go. <laughs> a re-gift. And then something else that caught my eye on their site was this thing I just saw today, and it's I haven't I haven't bought it yet, but it looks pretty neat. And basically, it's a rubber band that you put around your um, your smartphone, and it's got a little mac uh, like a macro cell uh, lens. So basically, it just snaps around your 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 iPhone or your Android phone or whatever you have, and it's got a little macro lens, and it fits over top of your uh, your cat your. Uh, 
phone's camera lens. I don't so know, do Bruce. Macro- this looks like my phone should be starring in flash dance. <laughs> <laughs> it just looked cool. It looks like it makes your phone look like it's an eighties chick. I don't know. That's <laughs> <laughs> like five bucks, you know. Yeah. Secret Santa gift or something for somebody, but it looked kind of cool. Totally cool, awesome, Bruce. Thank you. Yeah, I got I got one more audible. You know, this yeah, shows this is we're going to publish this on Friday, right? Yes. So for the few people who hear this show when it's really fresh, uh, Saturday five forty five a.m. Pacific time is a is the last total eclipse of the moon that we're going to see for quite a while. Is it what time is that? Like five forty five a.m. on Saturday, which is whatever day that is. 5:45 a.m. I think Saturday. I think I've got it right. Okay. And there, cool. there are a whole bunch of photo walks organized to go out and shoot the full moon. There's one San Francisco over Chrissy Field going to shoot it over the Golden Gate Bridge, things like that. And oh. I don't know what the geographic coverage of the eclipse is, you know, where where you'd see it at what time and so forth. Cool. All right. Excellent. We'll we'll link to that from and the show you, notes. And if you if you listen to this podcast on Saturday or Sunday, you missed it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you know, I've got my pick is is also very timely. So here's the story behind this. So I um, I have a Drobo. I used to work at Data Robotics, as most of the listeners or many of the listeners know. Um, and I no longer work there, but I still use the products because I believe in them. So I have two Drobos on my desk. Um, I wanted to replace one of them. I have a Drobo S and the Drobo 4Bay, the older unit. So I wanted to replace the 4Bay unit with another Drobo S because I back up to it. So I, of course, contacted the guys over at Drobo. I'm like, hey, you know me. Can you kick me down a discount or something? <laughs> you know, so they did. You know, they kicked, they gave me a discount. Um, so the regular price of the Drobo S is $800, $799 or $800. Um, so they kicked it down to, for me, $499. Plus, there's a mail-in rebate, which he told me about, of $100. So that brings the price of the $800 de- device down to $399. So I then, of course, after I made my order, I said, well, you know, hey, I do this podcast and listeners are kind of my family. Can I can I can I share that, you know, with people? Of course, they didn't want to share it for like an extended period of time. So they said from December 9th, which is when this show is going to go live through midnight on Saturday, December 10th, this December 9th, when you hear this, when it's live through December 10th, Saturday at midnight, if you use the code, what's the code? Twip Drobos, Twip Drobos, plural, no spaces. If you use that on their site on Drobo.com and purchase it, you can get the same price that I got. So check it out. If you want to link over to the page of the Drobo S that I bought, we'll put a link in the show notes. It's basically fvj.me slash twip drobos the same discount code but use that discount code if you can um if you were considering getting a drobo because this is for me this is the price that i wanted to pay for the unit i did not want to pay 800 for this three three ninety nine is usable or manageable for me so that worked and i ordered it and it's in the mail hopefully but um and, and it can be in the mail for you too if you want to use my discount so that's the the special frederick van price negotiated for the twip listeners definitely check that out and then my other pick was sketching light that's the joe mcnally book that uh that i alluded to earlier definitely a cool book check that out i'm going to read it tonight right after we finish recording this show i'm going to go through it because it's a thick book 
And then the other thing I wanted to mention is if you're listening to this on Friday during the day, tonight, Friday night, uh, the 9th, there is a This Week in Photo meetup event in San Jose. And the link is in the show notes for this episode or go to meetup.com and just search for TWIP and you'll find the meetup group. Mark Don, a uh, glamour photographer, flew in specifically to do this meetup from Austin, Texas, and he's going to be talking about glamour photography basics and how to get started and how to find models to shoot and all that good stuff. So it's uh, it's awesome. So definitely, definitely check that out if you are so inclined. All right, gentlemen, we are once again at the end of another exciting episode of This Week in Photo. Doug. Where can people go to find you and keep up with you and all, you know, or otherwise stalk you? You can see a portfolio with links to everything else at DougK.com or Twitter DougK. But the best place to find me is just go to Google Plus, look for Doug K. I won't read that long URL. <laughs> yeah, see, you Go- need to shorten it like I do. <laughs> I do. I knew I need to dot me. But uh, Google Plus is where I live. Okay, awesome. Google Plus. It's uh okay. So they can just uh, they can just search for your name, Doug K yes, on Google Plus Doug, and find Doug, you. Doug K with an E on the end. That's me. Yeah, K A Y E. Got it. Perfect. And Bruce Clark with an E on the end as well. Where can people go to find you? Well, there's a bar a couple blocks from my house. No. Um, <laughs> Not tonight. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. So uh, if they're looking for me online, uh, twitter.com slash Bruce Clark, and that's Clark with an E, uh, or my website at momentsindigital.com, and the blog is there as well. I'll hopefully try to get a few photos up uh, from our India and Nepal trip while we're on the road, if I can. So certainly drop by there while we're traveling uh, sort of end of the month and then uh, I'm also on Google Plus as well and I, I won't read that long string of numbers but if you just look for Bruce Clark on Google Plus you'll find me there too. Awesome and it's Bruce Clark with an E. With an E yes sir. On both words Bruce and Clark. They both Bruce and e. Clark yes <laughs> yes. <laughs> Alright thanks guys and don't re- don't forget listeners to tune in to TWIP tune in sounds so archaic or to access or click over to TWIP on the last Thursday of every month. Um, Again, starting in January, you can follow our Twitter or Facebook feeds to be reminded on when TWIP Live is going to go, is going to hit the airways. Normally we do it, like I was saying, the last Thursday of every month, but uh, we haven't over the last couple of weeks or the last couple of months because, you know, the holidays and all that craziness has gotten in the way, but we will kick it back up starting in January. And if you'd like to keep up with everything in the TWIP universe otherwise, just head over to thisweekinphoto.com. There you'll find links to all of our online presences. And also, please, please, please support the show um, by leaving us a comment on iTunes for the feed. Let us know what you think of the show and how much you love it and just, you know, otherwise gush about it. And speaking of iTunes, we have a TWIP podcast app. It's a handy way to keep up with the shows as soon as they're released. As soon as they hit the feed, they pop up in the podcast app. And it's also a way to communicate with us. And we're also available on Android devices. Android users can now subscribe to the feed and just check out the website for details. Welcome aboard, you robotic fiends. And if you're looking for me, Frederick Van Johnson, you can find me at Frederick Van. And with that, it is time to take that lens cap off.
This Week in Photo is a Pixelcore.tv production produced by Suzanne Llewellyn with technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar.